Welcome to Talking Education, the podcast where we discuss ideas, opinions and research about how education at all levels can prepare us for the 21st century. Today we talk to Laurie Delnoy, discussing her PhD thesis and getting her insights on how universities can help their students make better study decisions. Hello, this is just a notification from the editing table that um, Emma isn't too present in this episode because she was still recovering from an illness when we were recording. Um, so it's mostly me doing the interviewing of Laurie, but no worries. Uh, so you won't hear too much of Emma this time, unfortunately, but from next time onwards, she will be back with full force. So yeah, for now, enjoy the episode. Today's guest and our first guest on the podcast is Laurie Delnoy. Laurie is an assistant professor at the School of Business and Economics of Maastricht University. In this role, she's engaged in innovation of higher education and the supervision and mentoring of students at various levels of their academic careers. Next to her responsibilities at Maastricht University, Laurie is currently preparing for the final defense of her dissertation at the Open University of the Netherlands. In her doctoral work, she's investigating the factors influencing students' study choices in higher online education and how these decisions can be improved. To that end, she developed a self-assessment tool that helps prospective students make better decisions about their academic career and future in general. And with that being said, we welcome Laurie to the podcast. All right. Hello, Laurie. Uh, how are you doing? We are, we're excited to have you and... Thank you very much for taking the time and uh, yeah, to talk with us. Well, thank you for having me and hi to the both of you. I'm very excited to be here to discuss this topic and I'm fine. I hope you are too. Yeah, so far, uh, I think we, we, we can't complain at least. Um, yeah, maybe as a, as a start before we, before we go into, uh, into your research with your PhD and connected to the last episode, maybe a little bit about you. What what would you, uh, yeah? How would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Well, I think you introduced me already quite well, so I, I won't uh, repeat what you have said. But I think I would introduce myself as someone interested in a lot of things related to human decisions, human behavior, and how people learn. So um, yeah, a, apart from everything I did in my PhD research and I'm doing now, I think that's something I'm generally interested in and I like to talk about. So interested in a lot of things, uh, also likes to live the good life. So a little bit about me personally, uh, going for walks with my dog, just doing nice stuff with my friends and family. So that's it, I think. Nice. Yeah, and that's actually something that I didn't uh, say in the introduction to you is that you also, uh, that, that fits very well together with your interest in people is that you did your master's and your bachelor's at, uh, at FPN of Maastricht University in psychology, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I did a master program in health and social psychology, and then I switched to the more educational side afterwards. So I think that indicates already a little bit that I'm interested in quite a lot of things related to yeah how people behave, what decisions they make, and all that jazz. Yeah. 
how how did it actually uh, come about the switch from i mean it's it still makes sense right to looking at people and then going into okay how to help people learn with education but how did that particular um shift uh, happen for you yeah that's an interesting question i wonder about that sometimes as well when <laughs> reflecting on on those decisions i've made and they might have not been as linear as I thought of when I was making them. So it is a bit more of a chaotic process than what you actually think you want to have when you're in that position. Uh, but as you know, at Maastricht University, um, the, the students in the, in the second and third year and in the master programs, they get the opportunity to tutor in the first year or the years below that. And uh, I was a tutor as well uh, from the second year onwards. And I actually enjoyed that a lot. And that made me reflect on, yeah, maybe moving in towards that direction of education. So providing trainings or I, I wasn't quite sure about what shape and form that actually should have, but it did lead me towards more that educational direction. And then after the master program, I teach at a university of applied sciences for a year. So very much into the, the introduction parts of psychology. And I like that a lot as well. And that got me interested more in, in even more the educational design side. So what is yeah. assessment? What do we need to think about when we teach something to students? So then I went even more into this educational direction. And yeah, now I ended up here. <laughs> it's already a lot of interesting things there especially uh with the with the keyword of decision making and that yeah. it's usually not as as straightforward as we would sometimes like it to be and i think that's also something that we covered on the podcast in the past and also something that we're uh, very interested in in talking to you about basically Yeah, and, and in your previous podcast, I also heard, or in the previous episode, I also uh, noticed that you were talking about some kind of questions that you think about when making a, a study decision or the decision to go to university. And at the point you are making that decision, there are a lot of things that you actually think about, but you're not really aware of that you are thinking about those things. So only in hindsight, we can reflect on, hmm, actually, maybe this have led me to go into this direction or this has pushed me into that direction a little bit and at the point that it is happening you might not be even aware of which things actually trigger you to make a certain decision mm. very true how, how much do you think um, of this retrospect reflection is then actually what happened in the moment and how much is it sense making in a sense i mean i don't mean mm. it in a negative way but It's, it's a very hard di dynamic to figure out. Yeah, I think it's also a strategy of being comfortable with your decisions afterwards. So you made a decision and I ended up in this direction now, for example. So thinking about it, reflecting on it also gives me some sense of comfort at this point in time, feeling like hmm, maybe I didn't make such a bad decision after all. So and on the one hand, You can only reflect on those things afterwards because you have more distance. You're not in the process anymore. On the other hand, you use these reflections maybe as well a little bit as a strategy to get comfortable with the point that you are at the moment. Yeah. And there's It nothing makes... wrong with that, of course. No, no. It's a, I would even think that this might be 
necessity in a sense because as we as you already said uh, so so well it's like it's usually decision making is quite a chaotic process and the world is just too complex and especially if it's about like important decisions um or at least they seem in the moment as really important such as like should i go to university and uh if so what do i want to study and in the end like two years later three years later five years later 20 years later you find yourself somewhere where you would have never expected to end up basically and this yeah. is also um on the one hand it seems to me that this is a, a thing that's very scary for many people and but it's also on, on the other hand making this experience once you're through it in the sense can be a very nice experience and this making sense of the journey is is a very nice aspect of that i feel sometimes when you look yeah. back and it's like okay there was so much that we actually didn't consider and it, it still turned out in a in a way that is where we're happy I think, with yeah, this this sense making part is still part of the decision making process so mm. there's no clear start or end of this process of course for some decisions what am i wearing today there is a clear start and end mm -hmm. but with these bigger life decisions so to say maybe there isn't necessarily mm. this clear end of of the decision because you can yeah. still reflect on it and you have new knowledge new experiences that might help you to have a different perspective mm -hmm. on on how you ended up at a certain place true that makes makes a lot of sense and it's a very nice way of of seeing it that basically the yeah the, the path of um Yeah, it's it's hard to to find a word for it, but the path of making a decision is basically making the decision. Uh, no, I don't I don't have the word for it, but basically, someone decides to go to university and uh, yeah, well, enrolls in something, but then during the enrollment process and then during the first days of university and then the time afterwards, basically, the decision is still develops over and over through mm -hmm, the exactly. new new yeah. Yeah, and it's a I, very I think nice it way roots of... it roots somehow into you as a person. Uh, so and yeah. and you can mm -hmm. only see how that rooting develops once you made the decision, but it's still linked to making the decision. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I like it. It's a very yeah, nice. Way. It's very interesting. It's a very nice way of looking at it. Yes. Um. Taking this, uh, what what we've been basically talking about, the the decision making, you said that you already, yeah, ended up through through this chaotic journey, basically in in the in the education innovation and the education aspect of, uh, yeah, dealing with human beings, so to say. Yeah. Um, and you did, as we as we heard in in the introduction for you. You did the your PhD about was was centering around the um, decision making of yeah the study decision making especially at higher um, online education. Yeah. How did you how did you end up in specifically looking at at this type of of decision? Oh wow, <laughs> that's a very difficult question. Actually, I didn't really think about it that much how I ended up at this topic. I remember that in the beginning of my PhD, there were a lot of options uh, to go for, for the direction of my PhD. 
but at that point in time, I was still very much interested and more on the borderline of the psychology direction and the educational sciences direction. So I was actually trying to find a topic to integrate the two. And this topic Mm. fits very well to both perspectives. And uh, that's why I got interested and it excited me to to read more about it and to get to research that. So I think that, that mainly that integration of the two fields of interest was one of the reasons for me to go in this direction. And yeah, it ended up in, in a very nice journey. It wasn't always easy, but it may be even as chaotic as the decision-making process, as we just discussed, but it resulted in a lot of interesting insights and the higher online education context might be a bit different than the context and the questions you discussed in the previous episode, but I think it sheds a nice perspective that might become even more relevant now after the COVID pandemic and a lot of education being online as well, and maybe staying that way even. I think that, uh, yeah, that results in a lot of interesting insights for the future. Maybe because you already uh, brought it up, that was one thing that uh, Emma and me found quite interesting is in um, what are actually the differences between someone deciding to go to university as we know it, like the regular type, so to say, and someone deciding to go to an online uh, higher education. Yeah, I'm I'm not quite sure whether the differences are necessarily in the face-to-face or online education, but the, the, the target group that I researched at the Open University, I think the difference is mainly in that they are combining a study program with a job, other mm-hmm. responsibilities, taking care of a family, maybe uh, doing sports on a high level. And um, they study in part-time mainly. So I think that's that's a big difference. And that's not necessarily the case for all online education, especially the past two years. The other thing at the Open University is the, uh, the open access. So for a bachelor program, the only requirement is an age of 18 years or older. And at regular universities, at least in the Netherlands, there are additional requirements. So prior level of education, maybe even a specific study direction or course that you should have taken. And this this open access results in a more diverse target group for the Open University as well. So I think that the difference there is mainly that it's not only about this decision, which study direction am I interested in, but there's a more general question to, is it even the right time for me or is it even desirable for me to do a study next to all the other responsibilities Mm. I have, Mm. given that maybe I haven't studied before or a long time ago? And those are different questions than what are my interests and which study direction fits to that. It's already a lot lot to unpack. what what would be and i know that this wasn't i think at least this wasn't uh, the core necessarily of your phd but what would be motivations for for someone of the demographic that you just outlined mm-hmm. to to pursue um an, an, yeah an, an academic track in in an in the open university yeah and in, in one of the studies we did we actually asked this in in a questionnaire so more 
questions about demographic background and what are your intentions with studying uh, next to, to your job or next to other responsibilities? And the answers can be quite diverse. So for some people, it is a career switch that they are aiming for. So they need to be uh, knowledgeable in a certain field that they are not yet knowledgeable in. Uh, but on the other hand, there are a lot of people interested in, in a certain field of interest. They want to explore that further next to being retired and taking care of grandchildren just yeah. for fun. And the interesting thing is that um, from an institutional perspective, these people might not be as interesting. It's not the, the word I'm actually looking for, but I'll try to illustrate these people make this decision because of interest for fun. They want to explore cultural sciences because they are interested in that field. And they don't necessarily have the aim to get a degree in that direction. So they start the study program. They take a few courses that they are interested in. Maybe they don't even take the assessments related to the courses. And from an institutional perspective, you would maybe see these students as dropouts or as not as interested, not as engaged, but actually that wasn't their goal. So at the Open University or at the, the, the population I just described, that's a very interesting fact because not everyone starts with this intention to actually get a degree. Some do, but not all of them. So how do you take that into account? And then what is a right decision and what is a wrong decision, knowing that not everyone wants to actually finish a study program. Yeah, I really liked uh, when I when I uh, read through your dissertation, I really liked the um, this nuance that you had with what does study success actually mean yeah. in that particular context? Because as you just outlined, this is very, very important. Um, and also just how you describe the motivation that many, um, many yeah, applicants or students of the Open University bring to the table, so to say, is yeah. that's actually what a lot of educators at uh, at let's say, for example, Maastricht University, mm -hmm. but at the quote unquote regular universities would wish for their students to have, not yeah. to have like this. Okay, I want to have this degree, and that's why I'm here. But okay, I actually want to want to learn something, yeah. which is quite an quite an interesting uh, phenomenon let's call it uh, let's yeah. call it phenomenon on the other the hand you also have the the downside that institutions are often still judged on their enrollment and completion numbers and yeah when you you have this more classical connotation of study success in the sense that 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 belongs to people who finish their degree then yeah, we leave out a very important group and a very interesting group, those who are actually studying because they are interested in a certain topic and not necessarily with an eye on this degree. But institutions are judged on, on the figures of who is finishing this degree and who isn't. So there's a field of tension there, I'd mm. say. Why, why is that, that the completion rate is basically the the yeah the criteria that is being judged on is it because it's um yeah because it's just so easy to measure i think that's one of the main reasons yeah on the other hand it does say something i mean the, 
there's a lot of regulations involved in this, right? So in, in the Netherlands, in, in regular universities, it also depends on when someone drops out. So if you drop out before a certain date in the first year, you would get your money back or part of your money back. So of the tuition fee, I mean. So yeah, it's also about these things, right? So someone enrolls, pays tuition fee, and then drops out, gets gets a part of that money back. So then, yeah, the, the university doesn't get any uh, money for that student anymore. And then after that certain date, I'm not quite sure what the actual regulations are, but all these regulations are involved in this system as well. So, yeah, the only thing I can say about this is looking at what we mean with this term of study success completion rates, thinking about what target groups are we actually talking about and do we include everyone in that discussion and i'm not quite sure about that but i'm also not quite sure about what other measures we could take into account when judging the the quality of a of an education institute except from these completion rates enrollment rates things like that yeah it's the but i mean always already just posing this idea is already a good first step right i mean because i i wouldn't have known and it's just very very interesting to to hear yeah that it is the case the way it is and that people bring this motivation to the table and um yeah, yeah. being aware of 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 that is or is, is the first good step um all right so i think now uh yeah we have some context of what you what you have been doing where exactly in what particular context you have been yeah. um, doing your your uh, PhD research and and it seems to me that it, that the your your PhD journey or the research journey is kind of can be um, separated in three chapters so to say I know in your dissertation you have five but mm-hmm. uh, in the in the bigger scheme is kind of figuring out okay we want to help um, students or um, prospective students make better study decisions the first big branch or the first big theme was figuring out in general what are the factors that actually influence study decisions Mm -hmm. the second one would be um, something like okay does this actually hold in our particular context and we already saw that there might be some differences in the context that um, well where it's really important to to, to consider the context where it's happening. And the third one is then the de- development of the assessment tool that yeah. was basically, yeah, then based on, on these insights of the, of the first two um, steps. Is this an accurate, somewhat accurate description? Yeah, it's actually very nice to hear someone else summarizing the journey uh, in those parts. And it's, it's very accurate. So <laughs> Nice. I'm, I'm glad that I <laughs> that I managed it. Uh, um, yeah, could you could you maybe first? Yeah, again, we start broad and then we narrow in with the journey that we basically just just outlined. What are if we if we look in general on study decisions? What are the factors that seem to be very important? Yeah. Yeah, I think you were referring to the, the first study in, in my uh, dissertation here, where we, we yeah. looked into factors that are related to the study success of students that are already enrolled in higher education. And um, so, so that's one part of the question. 
we, we found there are a lot of different categories of variables that could be related to any outcome related to study success, as that is defined in many different ways as well, as we previously discussed. And um, some of these variables, I will, I will give some examples maybe to illustrate a, a little bit more clearly. So you have these variables related to the student, and that can be cognitive variables like uh, your, your skills in a certain course or in a certain direction, but also more non-cognitive factors, your discipline, um, attitudes you have, expectations you have of what it is to study in higher education. Uh, but it could also be factors related to the, the personal situation of a student. So how supportive is your environment, for example? Uh, how many hours do you have to, to spend on your study? How many hours do you have to spend on, on other responsibilities? Yeah. And then also factors related to the education institute. So the type of education they provide, but also the type of support services they have, all these things. And some of these factors um, are changeable. So if you would inform prospective students about the relevance of certain skills or the relevance of certain uh, things in the personal situation, they could still change something about that. They could train themselves in what learning strategies are effective. So they are very well prepared for using the, the most effective ones once they start studying. But on the other hand, there are also factors that are relevant for study success or are predictive of study success, but you can't really change anything about it. So the question then when designing these interventions, helping students in making study decisions or uh, after they are enrolled, helping them to, to be as successful as, they, as we wish or they want to be. In these interventions, we have to think very clearly about what factors do we focus on, which ones are most relevant for the context we are operating in and which ones are actually changeable. Because yeah, it, it doesn't make sense to focus on those things that we can't really change, but they can still be very relevant. It can still be that, that there is a gender effect in, in using study strategies. And for some people, some yeah. strategies are more effective or in some context, we know a lot about these, these study strategies already from cognitive science. So there could be interaction effects to, to still explore, but we have to think very clear, carefully about what types of factors do we focus on when we are designing these interventions mm. to make sure that these interventions are effective. Um, you were also talking about the, the factors that influence the study mm. decisions. That's not something I looked into that specifically. We, we did look into um, study choice certainty, for example, whether that plays a role in the process and also how students engage with, with these interventions to help them make better study decisions. Um, but, but as said previously, it, it depends a lot on the context as well, which questions are relevant in making a study decision. Is it only about what type of study direction fits your interests? Or is it even a more general question? Like, does it even fit my life to, to start a study program or not? Hmm. That's so, a lot to digest, yeah, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it, I'm it sorry. No, no. That's, yeah. that's why we brought you on to get like the actual expert knowledge and not just yeah. some, uh, some people who have <laughs> no expert knowledge bouncing around ideas. Um, in, 
somewhat in somewhat layman's terms what was then the the decision process on on focusing on the type of factors that you decided um on or maybe first what were actually the final factors that you wanted to focus on in in the um in the um, self-assessment tool mm -hmm. that you built yeah so we we had a s several criteria to select factors for the self-assessment and to explain that more clearly so we had to decide on like what tests do we include in this self-assessment so prospective students will have some assignments questions questionnaires or, or little tests in an online environment and they will receive feedback on those tests or questions and that feedback will explain to them whether they are prepared for higher education and what they could still do to prepare even better and the question was like what kind of tests should we include what is relevant for prospective students for our research in the open university but for making the study decision and the criteria we had was that these uh, these tests should be predictive of study success to a certain extent, because that's what we want to explain to them, right? You are prepared for studying in higher education. Your chances of study success are at a certain level. So they have to be predictive of study success. And on the other hand, it has to make sense to test them prior to student enrollment. So, for example, uh, faculty-student interaction is a, is a predictor of study success, so how teaching staff interacts with students. But it doesn't make sense to test that before students are enrolled because there's no such interaction yet. And the, the third criterion we had was that it, it has to be changeable. So the tests have to be on a factor that students can still work on or at least reflect on before starting a study program in higher education. So the feedback should give them some options to, for example, learn more about effective study strategies to prepare themselves for studying in higher education. So those were the criteria for us to, to select for the self-assessment. But then the second question is, how do you actually measure those things? Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that's that's the different part of the story. Yeah. How does this part of the story look like? That's that's a very chaotic process as well. Um, there's a lot of options to measure these things. There are also certainly better and worse ways to do so. So we included. Um, we, we first looked at, at several instruments that were designed in the context of traditional higher education. So face-to-face uh, -face universities or universities providing face-to-face -face education, not focusing on this diverse uh, student group as the Open University does. But those needed quite some adjustments to fit the, the target group we were talking about. So that asked quite a lot of steps in, in the process. Uh, on the other hand, um, it is always recommendable not to rely only on these self-report measures. So the, our self-assessment would still be up for improvement by including more objective measures of the factors that we, we focus on. And you could also think about this, this trial studying test. They often do that in, in other universities in the Netherlands, where you can take a, a lecture or literature from a certain course, and then you have some assignments 
on uh, on what you have learned in that lecture or literature. And that's actually a very good predictor of study success after student enrollment. And it is a more objective measure than asking someone mm. how disciplined they are or how much they know about a certain topic. Because we also know that it's quite hard for people to judge their own mm. competence. Uh, you could have an, a whole uh, podcast episode on that, but um, it, it would be recommendable to to include more objective measures as well. Right. But this also ties together a little bit where the yeah the chaos of the human mind comes into the equation a little bit um, related to a topic that you also said earlier or mentioned earlier, which is the certainty about a study decision yeah. that is an important right. factor, right? Yeah. And so there's a probably, um, I would guess that there's an interesting interaction there that what is objectively very useful or where there might be things that might be objectively not useful might still have an impact, a positive impact maybe, or a negative, I don't know, uh, on the person actually making the study decision because it increases the, the certainty about the decision. Exactly. Yeah, I think you touch upon a very important topic there as well. It's not only about the instrument of or the self-assessment in itself, but also on the way prospective students use this instrument. It's one part of this whole chain of the decision-making process. So the, some prospective students have some other orientation activities already before. For some, the self-assessment might be the first thing they do to orient themselves towards studying in higher education. And um, we have to take this into account as well when evaluating the instrument because people use it in different ways. And we also need to instruct them very well on how to use such an instrument. Mm -hmm. I mean, the study decisions should not only be aligned to this, to this self-assessment, there's more towards the study decision-making process than only this instrument. This is yeah. one, uh, one of the support uh, services that we offer. And um, uh, reflecting on this certainty, there's a, a few interesting results that, that might be nice to talk, to talk about in this uh, episode as well, is that students who are actually quite certain already about their decision, in, in some research, they, they see that these students actually only look for confirmation. So when they do the self-assessment, for example, they only look at the positive scores and they only look at the mm. feedback that tells them you're very well prepared. That's not how the feedback is phrased, by the way, but just to, <laughs> to give an example. Yeah. And in one of our studies, we've seen this as well, that these students tend to look for or information that confirms the decision they actually already made. But on a larger scale study, so in which we involved way more participants, we've also seen that students are still open to downsize their certainty based on, on, on worse scores, so to say. So we, we call that risk scores. So we have more safe scores and risk scores in the self-assessment. And we did see that those students who obtained such risk scores still downsized their certainties to some extent. So it's not really clear yet, like where should this self-assessment be positioned mm. in the study decision-making process? Is it for those who are really not certain about their decision yet? 
or is it helpful also still for those who actually made their decision already but still would like an an, an extra confirmation or an extra information that tells them hmm, maybe you should still reflect on it a little bit we're not quite sure about that yet but yeah that also indicates that this process is not as straightforward as it might yeah. seem yeah that that's really what it sounds like because trying to think of how to measure something like this seems uh, not easy let's say <laughs> to 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 measure when does it for for whom does it have this reassuring effect where they mm -hmm. basically already made the decision yeah. and does this reassuring effect actually have a positive influence on their engagement exactly. with the studies mm -hmm. yeah because it isn't necessarily a bad thing to to reassure a decision that you actually already made so yeah, yeah it, it could be it depends on i mean if someone scores very bad on all these things and then they feel assured in their decision that this is the way to go maybe it isn't uh, used in the way that we hope so but reassuring someone who is scoring quite well on these things so let's say the overarching conclusion of the self-assessment would be this person is quite well prepared and then this conclusion reassures that person in the decision to enroll in this in this program that's not a bad thing mm. i mean it doesn't have an an uh, an effect in the way that we changed someone's decision but that's not the aim of the self-assessment to change someone's decision so reassurement could be a valid outcome of this self-assessment as well that's actually a, a nice segue to maybe into the development developmental process uh, of the tool itself because we've we've at the beginning we've touched upon um yeah the the complexity of what what is actually success and mm -hmm. i think this is now reoccurring it's like okay what is the tool actually supposed to do yeah. and maybe what what is your your when you when you started out and then throughout the process what was your aim with the tool that you built what was your what what did you want to achieve with this and how did this conceptualization of of this goal so to say ch um, develop during the process yes yeah, so the the idea underlying this tool, but, but similar tools as well, is to um, yeah to help prospective students in the study decision making process. And there's a more overarching aim to that. In our case, is to to decrease non-completion problem. Uh, so students dropping out because they were not informed as well before they enrolled, or they. Uh, had unrealistic expectations. So once they started studying in higher education, they noticed this isn't really for me. And some of these things, and not to a complete extent, but to some extent, you could uh, prevent this by informing them and by providing tools before they enroll. So for some students, you could prevent the frustrating experience. And for some, you could reassure them that it's fine, that, that this is their way to go. And that's what these tools are, are aimed at. So to provide some kind of support in this uh, process of making that decision. And we can't solve the entire problem only by one of these tools. We are very aware of that, but it can be one part of the chain to do so. Hmm. And it's maybe 
I'm curious to hear what you think about it. Maybe this also relates to what we had in the beginning before we started talking specifically about your um, PhD project. It's like decision-making journeys, so to say, are messy. And of course, you cannot expect to, to solve them completely in a way. And probably there's also an underlying... Um, probably you don't want to fix them completely, that they are completely linear, right? And in, in the it sense... It shouldn't be the goal, no, to get them completely linear because, yeah, that's not how these processes go or how they are supposed to be. And and one thing I would like to add to, to what I previously said is like th this could be one part of the chain to support someone in that messy, chaotic process, but it still could be a very important intervention in that process. One part of, of the reasons why they go into a certain direction or decide mm. not to, so that does ask very careful design of these kind of tools. And that's not always the case. So yeah, I think that's very important to mention as well, maybe not necessarily for, for individuals who are making a study decision, but on an institutional and societal level, that is very important to think about, that we don't throw just a bunch of questionnaires and tests into this process for, for individuals and then think that they will base a very good decision on that. But we need to think very carefully on how we design such tools and how we want people to use them and, and instruct them to do so. We have to monitor this because it's a potential, yeah, very important intervention. Even though it's just one part of the, of the chain, it could be a very important one. Yeah. And probably, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure about any statistics, but intuitively it seems like when you try to develop something as complex as, as this, if you're not careful about it, it backfires more often than it actually does what you want it to do. Yeah, that's a very, yeah, that's a very good thing to add because it's not only that if it doesn't work, it doesn't harm, it, it could actually be harmful if you don't mm. design it carefully. So it's very important to, to evaluate and also to, to include the, the, the potential users of, of such tools in the design process and to, to align these tools to their expectations and to their experiences. Because yeah, if they don't see the relevance and if they don't know how to use it, then we can't expect the effects that we hope for. Yeah. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. How how does this process then look like of of developing such a tool and making sure that well that the necessary quality criteria are, are fulfilled? Yeah, yeah, we looked at five what we call validity perspectives. So validity then is about the the, the interpretation of the test results. So the, the result of the self assessment that how someone interprets these scores and the actions that follow that interpretation, so the potential study decision, that those interpretations and actions are aligned to the, the goal of the tool. And we looked at five perspectives to evaluate whether that is the case. And I already talked about this a little bit with uh, determining on what, what kind of tests do you actually include. That is one of the perspectives we looked at. But we also looked at uh, how do users actually fill out these tests? What do they think when they take these tests? And is that uh, are they using the strategies that they should use to answer these questions? Are we measuring 
numerical skills or mathematical skills, or are we measuring how well people can guess mathematical questions? That's a very important aspect of the design process of these kind of tools. And it's important to look at all those perspectives and also to keep on monitoring those because the target group changes, the, the Open University changes. As time develops, this tool needs monitoring. We can't just say at this point in time, looks good like this, just keep on using it like this for the upcoming 20 years. Yeah. That, that doesn't work. So this is a process that actually, it's an ongoing process to monitor these validity aspects and to make sure that indeed these interpretations and actions based on, on such a tool are valid. Yeah. How is it um, to, to then actually continuously monitor um, yeah, the outcomes of, of such an intervention once, is, is it, once it is set in place? Is it as complex as setting it up originally, or does it having the structure at least already make it at least a little bit easier? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, we're not at that point in time yet. So it's, it's just me estimating what this process would look like. So ask me again in a few years and I might give a different answer, but um, I think with time and with experience, of course, we know much more about how we can actually investigate this. And we also know way more now about measurement and mm. about and just the example I gave before, like, what are we actually measuring? We are way further in, in the knowledge we have about this now than 10 years ago. So as time develops, we know more about these topics. So it becomes easier to investigate that as well. Mm. But there's also different technologies uh, rising to investigate these things. I said, like, what, what kind of strategies are people using to, to answer these questions in such a tool? You could also do eye tracking research on this, just to give one example, yeah. to, to get insight into where are prospective students looking when doing such a test, when they are reading the feedback, do they actually read all the sentences or do they just focus on certain parts of the feedback? These kind of technologies come in very handy when investigating this, but that wasn't possible a couple of years ago. So mm. can't fully answer that question, but I think with time developing, we get more tools and more insights on, on how to investigate and monitor these tools. Um, maybe to pick up on one thing, one uh, distinction that you made, at least implicitly, was this: okay, on on the one hand, you have to focus what do you actually put into the test itself, into the assessment yeah. itself. The other is how do the people who have to, or not who have to, or the people who interact with this assessment tool, how are they actually going to do it? Yeah. Um, from this investigation on the on the human on the human side. What was uh, yeah very in what was the most interesting thing to you that that you found during your research? Um, yeah, there's two things I would uh, would like to mention here. It's the the difference of strategies that people use when when doing these tests. So with the cognitive tests, the, for instance, the test on numerical skills. That's how we call it, but you could also call it mathematical skills. 
they tend to use more invalid strategies, so to say. So they guess answers. They are in a rush to make sure that they, they answer these questions in a certain time, even though it's not timed. And they, they also mentioned that they, they felt this pressure of um, that answers could be either good or wrong, right yeah. or wrong. And in the non-cognitive tests, so tests focusing on, for example, discipline, um, they derive their answers on based on reflection of similar study experiences they had before or similar experience they had before, in which they also had to keep up with the planning, for example. So they took more time to think about what answer does fit my situation. And they did base their answer on careful reflection. On the other hand, you could wonder what people actually do when they are not observed. Because mm. in this study, they were being observed and they had to think aloud. So they were verbalizing their thought process while answering these questions. But that's not an authentic situation of engaging with such a tool. So the question is, what do people do when they are not being observed and when they are actually using this tool to partly base their study decision on? There's also research on that. And people tend to fake, even though there are no stakes. I mean, it's not yeah. that they are being selected for a study program based on, on their assessment results. Yeah. It's, it's a non-binding tool. So even in that occasion, uh, people have a tendency to socially desirable answer these questions or maybe not socially desirable, but for themselves desirable mm. because they, they have some kind of idea about what is the better answer, even though it's about discipline. So that's something to, to take into account when thinking about these tools. That's also very much related to my recommendation to have objective measures as well and not only self-report measures. The other thing that was very interesting is that the reading strategies for the feedback depend on what score you get. So if you have this safe score, so to say, um, then you probably take less time to read the feedback. You just scan yeah. to see whether there's surprising information in it. But if you have um, a higher risk score, you tend to take more time to read the feedback. Maybe you even click on one of the links and you tend to reflect a little bit more on what does it actually say. And mm -hmm. that's actually one of the strategies that is very much in line with what we hope for uh, when, when designing this tool. So it's strategies for, for answering the questions or doing the tests on the one end. And on the other hand, it's the strategies for engaging with the feedback that you get afterwards. Yeah. In relation to this, one thing that came to mind um, while you were explaining these two uh, phenomena was that I think I remember reading that the users did not want or at least did not expect to be compared against another group yeah. of, um, of yeah, standard scores or however you want to call it. Yeah. How does this fit together with the idea of, okay, our self-assessment, as, as we know from, from psychological research, is often not as objective as we would like to have it. But mm. then you suggest objective measures and but then the people don't want it. 
or is it is it that clear cut or how how do, how do these different pieces fit together? Oh, that's an interesting link that I didn't really yeah integrate as much in in the dissertation itself. We we looked at the objective measures more as an addition to the self assessment. So except for only having self-report measures include something like this trial studying tests I explained before, but there's uh, tons of opportunities there. And with the comparison, it was more related to how do you present the feedback to the users? So when they receive their score on, let's say, a discipline test or a mathematics skills test, uh, do you present on a scale of, of 1 to 100%, like this is your score, given the, the maximum score on the test itself, you score here? Or do you compare their score to other test users? Hmm. You score 50%, but other mm -hmm. test users on average score this. So what, what do you use as an indication or as, as an interpretation of the score? Because... You score 50% on a scale of 1 to 100% doesn't necessarily say as much. But what is no. the interpretation of this score? Is 50% a high-risk score or a safe score? Mm -hmm. And you could use a comparison to give that indication. And we saw in our research that the, the adult student population of the Open University is not necessarily interested in such a comparison. But younger students in traditional higher education might might be interested in such a comparison it might even be useful for them to make sense of the feedback mm. and there's a lot of interesting psychological research on that phenomenon as well from social comparison theory and different yeah. types of social comparison so yeah that's an interesting direction to to uh, dive into yeah i don't know too much of that literature unfortunately but i've been thinking in, in in terms of in higher education in comparison quite a bit about it and there's there's this it's this really interesting balance because arguably a lot what a lot of educators want um and what is not not the status quo so to say is that students compare themselves to themselves basically and it's just like okay how can i how can I make the most out of what I have now and how can I get better, but not based on like where this other other person is. That's like the, some one in a million student who has like this insane CV and nobody can basically um, keep up with them, but really focus on the self. But on the other hand, there's this, if you just let students be, especially, at, at least, and that's just my, that's not from the literature, that's for, just from my experience. But if you let bachelor students, especially at the beginning, just let them run, they will, after an exam, clot together and talk about, okay, how was your experience? And then when once the grades are out, okay, what are your, um, what are your, um, yeah, what what grade did you have? Just to map the social landscape in, in yeah. a bit, so that it is also a very important mechanism on one level. But very interesting that you make the dis the distinction between, okay, you have these people who are already established in life, so to say, quote unquote, yeah. with they have something very important on the side. They, they might have a family, they have a, um, a sports career, a very intense one, They whatever else they already have, um, that this might change over time and with, with age. Um, yeah. 
But I think the grading thing is a very important related topic in in the when we're talking about the social comparison theory as well. Because with grading in, in higher education, but in all levels of education, we're actually doing the same. We're just rank ordering people. Hmm. And the question cool. is whether that fits the needs of those who are engaged in education and whether it fits the, the goals we have with our education. That's a whole different topic and should be very interesting. It would be very interesting to have a, an episode on this as well, but it, it relates a lot to this social comparison discussion too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we're moving towards the end, so I'm trying to to find a nice nice way to to wrap up. And what I'm th- I'm thinking is you're in a very nice position because you're on the one hand you have done research now for the last four years on, on these type of topics and you're, you're, you're an expert in this domain, but you also have experience, direct experience with teaching and you have experience with the um, yeah, design of education, so to say. So you're in a, in a very nice, nice spot. And so my question, or it's actually two questions, just, um, and I'm, I'm not like expecting this to be exhaustive, but on on based on your research and what you know from from teaching students and from being involved in the education creation process what are like some some of the takeaways that might be helpful for for people who are just facing an important study decision on the one hand mm-hmm. so the student side and maybe for the others uh, on the other side on the institutional side what what might be nice takeaways that um yeah other educators could benefit from yeah, I think the, the second part of your question is easier for me to answer because in, in the research studies I did, we looked mainly from the institutional perspective as well. And, and in, in that regard, I would definitely say these tools as careful design. So it, it's what I've said before. It is a process of designing and evaluating these things. And that process doesn't necessarily have a clear end. Uh, like the decision-making process doesn't have a a clear end as well. And it asks for careful design in which you involve the potential users as well. And in which you, uh, you take into account the context for which you are designing this, uh, this intervention. And yeah, we hope to be one of the examples in that regard for the individual students who are making such a decision, um, yeah, I think the the different questions that come to mind when making such a decision are very important. So not only think about what is my interest and which study direction does fit to that, but also think about the other expectations you have of what it is to study in higher education and are those expectations realistic? Um, and also think about like the support system around you once you start studying in higher education, is there such a system? Maybe there are things that before you enroll in higher education, you can still arrange and can still do to prepare yourself. Um, But on the other end, on an individual level, I'm not quite sure whether making a wrong study decision, whether that is actually possible, but also whether if it's possible, whether it's a problem. 
So what if after two months you realize this is not my place to be? It still brings you a bit closer to the place to be because now you know what is not your place to be. And what is the problem with switching from study program after a year? I did so too. So, and I'm, I'm ended up fine as you, you heard in this episode. So it's not necessarily a problem. So maybe reflect on the stakes of the decision as well. Yeah. That's a, a very nice uh, concluding um, thought, I would say. And it also yeah. makes me quite optimistic because I think that's a few that Emma and me have discussed in, in previous episodes. And yeah. I've also happened to today talk to another educator who said something very similar to this, mm. this idea of you make decisions, but you can we trust. You can always them. readjust. Ex exactly. And that, that there is this, that their distrust is developing more and more, not only in the student body, but that also more educators and experts have shared these, these type of, um, yeah, this perspective on, 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 on the big problem of what do I want to do with my life and in the specific sub part of what do I want to study and yeah. if I want to study, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you have anything, any, any concluding thoughts that you would like to add? Anything that hasn't been said or maybe just just a question for you like you you talked a, about it already a little bit in the previous episode of how you made these decisions but now now we have have had all these discussions in this episode i'm wondering like what kind of activities did you do and did they, how did they contribute to your decision um yeah, for me, it was talking to people who were doing what I was thinking I wanted to do. And that meant that I talked to, in my particular case, I talked to musicians, I talked to architects, and I talked to psychologists. And it was quite funny because the architects told me, don't do it. <laughs> so that was, a, it was actually quite useful. Sometimes you talk to people and they just say, hey, it's not the same anymore as it used to be. It's not this romantic picture that you have in mind for what you want to do. Um, yeah, and I, I, I gave myself also, I gave myself time. And I think this is also something that's really important to, yeah, to really allow yourself to, to take the time with these important decisions because even if you process a lot of information, you still need to allow this information to settle in, basically. Yeah. But I think Emma also has a nice um, her way of approaching. It was also <laughs> very nice. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you so much for all of uh, what you have been sharing. <laughs> I really, really um, loved this discussion and listening to you and many things came to my mind but yeah about your question I personally studied my bachelor in Maastricht in the college of Maastricht so I could choose my classes still along the way right 
Um, yeah. And I think I made this decision indeed to not have to make a disciplinary decision, um, but mm -hmm. rather focus on a pedagogical decision. I knew that um, a fit for me, I was certain, I felt certain that what was the most important um, factor for me was how I learned and not particularly what I learned, but really how I learned. And so I knew Maastricht University would be a good fit for me because I have been in this kind of pedagogy before. Um, and I also, yeah, was very uncertain of what I wanted to do. So I found a, a system feeding basically this uh, uncertainty, but love for learning in general. That would really welcome that. Um, and for my master program, basically, I'm doing a one-year master of educational sciences. And I basically simply discovered that I love the science of learning. But again, I don't want to specifically focus on um, children development or um, I know I, I really like adult learning right but this could really take any kind of um, shape it could be on an individual coaching practice for lifelong learning or on an institu institutional level of consulting for example um, mm -hmm. and again I feel that um, yeah I again looked at you were mentioning this, I think, along the process, but um, I really have this strong belief that whatever decision I'm making is not really binding of anything, and I can make further decision later. And therefore, um, the stakes are not very too high because mm -hmm. I'm simply hoping to learn, and I also have trust in my academic um, abilities, basically, because of historical like um, successes, let's say. Um, and I think that's yeah that's uh, that has grounded my decisions, um, yeah, which are not also I feel not um, hindered or not like shaped by either fear or high expectation or I'm kind of letting things come as they are. And I, that's yeah that's the reason why I really really loved everything you were talking about um, and your perception on yeah. Um, what is actually success um, yeah. of academia, right? And um, does it mean completion of a program or might it mean learning about yourself to take another track, right? And yeah. follow another path. So, yeah. Very interesting to hear your perspectives <laughs> on this. And actually the combination of your two approaches seems like, to fit very well with the recommendation that I made at the end of uh, with with the last question you asked Nicholas, so that's very nice. Mm. Nice, I mean that's that's nice to hear that it adds together because um, one of the reasons why we started this podcast and like Emma and me was that we were both very interested. We are both very interested in these types of topics, but we sometimes come from different perspectives and. Sometimes they clash, but sometimes they also just happen to complement each other yeah. in, mm -hmm. in nice ways. And um, that's just, yeah, why, why we're doing this, basically. And it's really yeah. nice to, to hear that play out this way. Yeah, and I feel that you as a guest is illustrating this also very well. Um, for first episode with a guest is really, um, I don't know, yeah, bringing a perspective that we both can really, like, feel passionate about probably on different levels um, and really appreciate this discussion um, for different aspects that again 
make a full picture by your research and you being you, right? So, yeah, this is a this is a really a, a treat for us. That's so nice to hear. <laughs> I I enjoyed it a lot to be here as well. Yeah. It's I mean, researchers always find it nice to talk about their research, but yeah, this is a different context and uh, different types of questions than you would normally get. So it really inspires me as well. And um, yeah, very exciting. Wonderful. Nice. Yeah, I would add something to that, but I think I can't say it better than Emma did. So <laughs> I'm just going to let it stand like this and um, say thank you very much for yeah for taking the time and for being interested and for sharing your yeah your knowledge, your expertise and your views on, on the topics that we discussed. And I also I found it a very interesting and very inspiring uh, conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> and maybe uh, one last thing. Uh, if, let's say, uh, for example, uh, an educator hears this and finds some of the things that you were talking about uh, interesting and wants to dig deeper, how can they, how could they reach yeah. out to you? That's, uh, yeah, it, I think the easiest way is to send an email to my Maastricht University email. So that's l.delnoy at maastrichtuniversity.nl. And then, right. yeah, that. Uh, that we can discuss the things and engage with these discussions even into more detail. Perfect. Wonderful. Then thank you very much. And yeah, all the best for, for what's to come. Mm -hmm. Likewise. Likewise. <laughs>